I'd like to tell you about the strangest secret in the world. You go inside the cage. Cage goes in the water. You go in the water. Shark's in the water. Our shark. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. received orders for to sail back to Boston. So never more shall we see you again. <laughs> Mind Revolution, leading you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. Hey there, everybody. PT Pop here with all four loads of my brain securely bound behind my back. And welcome back. Welcome back to PT Pop, a Mind Revolution where I lead you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. And thank you for tuning in on this fine, fine uh, Tuesday, September 27th, 2022. And I am grateful to have each and every one of you. And it is a beautiful autumn day here in Ohio. The leaves haven't really begun to change yet. They're still green as can be. And it's about 55 degrees outside, beautiful, chilly weather, my favorite time of year. So I uh, hope you're all doing well, and I hope you have all survived the pandemic. And uh, I've been really busy recently. Um, I had a studio space in Dayton for a short time, but it just turned out to be too far away. It's a three-hour drive for me. Then I had to find a place to live while I was down there doing stuff so I had to stay at a holiday inn or a hotel or something it was getting to be true truly too expensive so I just recently found a new space in Cleveland for a good price in a good location in a secure building so I've been uh, running around trying to figure out how to get my stuff out of Dayton and down to Cleveland um, I'm it's only 20 miles from my door this new place and you know it's it's been it's been a great a great thing though because uh, the space in Dayton was awesome and the people down in Dayton the art community in Dayton is just from just amazing amazing people and I had a great experience down there met some wonderful people and uh, I know some wonderful people made some friends down there but unfortunately, um, it just it just didn't work for me. It just the 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 logistics were off, and um, what had occurred for me was I, I loved the space I had down there. It was um, about fifteen hundred square feet in this old building in a in an art location called Front Street. Front Street Studios, and I loved it, but it again, it was just too expensive. So I found a new place. Haven't quite signed the lease yet because we're working out some things and uh, trying to get some insurance for the lease. I have to sign a lease there. But I've been really busy, and uh, I've been working on a new documentary, my old documentary, which is called The Artist of Documentary, and I'll show you that here. The Artist of Documentary is a film that I made uh, two years ago, and it just recently was released on Amazon Prime Video. My distributor got it. Ooh, I've got a bouncing icon for something down here. Please stop bouncing. Bouncing icons, don't you love them? Peace and love to the peace, bouncing icons. Uh, my distributor, which is Film Hub, has got me on a bunch of different platforms other than YouTube, and they got my film onto Amazon Prime, which I'm grateful for. Way to go, Film Hub. 
because this this should open it up to a bigger audience though <clears throat> i have to do some promotion for the film i have done like no promotion for this film so i've hardly made any any money back on my initial investment to make the film but now that it's on amazon prime perhaps it will get more and more viewership uh, but please check it out. The, the documentary, The Artist, is filmed in the thriving art community of Dayton, Ohio, where my studio was. And it's a documentary that explores the life of an artist through the conversations with people passionate about what it means to be an artist, the challenges they face in this digital age especially, and the importance of the support of the art community. And if you want a really good art community... Go to Dayton. Dayton, Ohio has warm, friendly, wonderful people, very talented artists. My friend Logan uh, Rogers, who appears in the film. My friend Rusty Harden appears in the film. And a variety of other wonderful artists, including myself. I'm in the film as well, and I'm wonderful. I'm a wonderful artist. <laughs> and you'll love it. It's a great film. It's, it's a, got a good positive message. Um, I'm working on a new documentary it's my second documentary. It's an autobiographical film about my childhood and about being raised in poverty by two alcoholic parents. And this is not a film designed to paint my parents in a bad light or my family in a bad light, but in, in the United States alone, there are millions and millions of people who are raised in a dysfunctional family where one or both parents were alcoholics or are alcoholics, and you're raised at a very young age not to talk about it. You're told you don't want to put your parents in an unfavorable light as a kid, which I think is ironic. I mean, here, my parents um, were so so addicted to alcohol, my father especially, that we were homeless because of it. And all he, all he could think about was his next drink. And, you know... There was abuse. Uh, my mother suffered physical abuse at the hands of my father. All of my siblings, myself and my three siblings, suffered emotional, mental abuse at their hands, both of their hands. Um, and when you go to school and you're in elementary school and you're going through this, you hope and pray that no one knows what's going at home because you, you don't want to you don't want to be made fun of because you know how cruel kids could be. Kids can be really nasty. And so... But it's also understood that you don't want to talk about what's going on at home. And, and your parents will say, hey, don't talk about this outside the house. Nobody needs to know about what's going on at home except what's, you know, us. So you grow up, you go through junior high school, high school, you get into college, wherever you go after high school, and you carry this baggage with you and you're not allowed to talk about it with anyone. And I think it's time that each of us start talking about what we went through because part of the healing process is talking about it. You have to talk about it. But you also have to learn to deal with it and move on from it because if you don't move from on from it, you just talk about it all the time, you're constantly reliving these bad nightmare situations as a kid. And that's what I'm I'm conquering in this video. I'm going to show you how... I overcame a lot of stuff as a kid and how I'm still dealing with many things today as a 56-year-old man. But that's my new documentary. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. And uh, I want to thank uh, Mr. Richard Gage of Richard Gage 911. He's the former CEO and founding father of Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth. I want to thank Richard for appearing on my show last week. I had the honor and the pleasure of talking with him, and he and I discussed the truth about 9-11 and the three buildings that fell on 9-11. There's a building that most of you probably don't know about called Building 7 that collapsed at free fall speed, and it was more than obvious. It was demolished with explosives, though the official story from NIST and our government says otherwise. But he and I discussed that, and please check out Richard Gage's website, richardgage911.org. And um, check out my podcast where we talk about all of the things that happened on 9-11. Um, I'm finishing a book right now. 
you know, th- these last these last six months for me have been eye opening. Um, my previous interview with Brian Tui about professional sports in the United States being fixed. You know, I'd always been suspicious of it. I'd always been suspicious of it, and I have not read of all of all of Brian's books, but I read his book, The Fix Is In, and it knocked me for a loop. Um, my suspicions were confirmed, and I do. I'm now a firm believer that professional sports that we watch, baseball, basketball, football, hockey, all of it, it's all fixed. And that was very a very sobering moment for me because I grew up watching the Cleveland Indians, the Cavs, and the Browns. And those teams always lead us to heartache. They always lead us down this path of complete heartache. And and as I look back on it, even as I watch some of these games, you'd see penalties get called at certain really important parts of a drive for Cleveland where it would affect... affect um, <clears throat> the outcome of the game. And I thought, but this is just a little bit too convenient. How how did they happen to just get a holding penalty when they're just about to score a touchdown, then they end up just getting a field goal, you know? But that, that was an eye-opening moment for me. And I recently started a book written by Dave McGowan called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. And I ask each of you to buy this book and read it. This book discusses the music scene that came out of the West Coast in Laurel Canyon, California, during the mid to late 1960s and and into the early 1970s. And I'm telling you, I was not aware of the buildup of this music scene and where it came from. I was not aware of it, and I was not aware of its strange background. And I'm blown away by this. I mean, it's basically this book. I have, I've only got about 150 pages into it. But this book basically outlines how these bands, some of these bands, like, like the band The Birds, nobody in the band other than one guy knew how to play an instrument. Yet within a year of getting together, they somehow had a recording contract <laughs> and a hit single or on the radio and it just happened just overnight. But it just so happens in the middle of this entire Laurel Canyon was a huge presence of military intelligence. And many of these men and women who were in these bands either were themselves part of the military intelligence complex or their parents came from military Parts of the military, such as the CIA or subversive and uh, top secret military groups. And I'll talk about this more once I finish the book. But it turns out that, that, that uh, I don't know if I n- mentioned the name of the book, but the book by uh, David McGowan is called Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon. Laurel Canyon, Covert Ops, and the Dark Heart of the Hippie Dream. And this book basically outlines how I haven't gotten gotten to a point where he comes out and says that the hippie scene and the music scene that came out of the West Coast was propped up by the government in order to undermine the minds of the youth in America, and they themselves started the hippie movement. But it's it's kind of alluding to that, that the government is part of this. So this has been a huge, huge six or seven months for me, very eye-opening, where I'm finding out that most of the things that I grew up believing in and idolizing, the false idols that I grew up believing in, including the Beatles, were fake. And there's a wonderful guy on YouTube who has a channel called Sage of Quay. His name is Mike Williams. And for those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm a massive, or I was a massive, massive, massive Beatles fan. And... The Beatles' music and their personality saved me and gave me a place to escape to during my childhood, my tumultuous childhood with two alcoholic parents. And um, Mike Williams has outlined how, and I'm convinced based off of the facts, he has facts, 
showing these things that the Beatles didn't even play their own musical instruments on their first six or seven records, and that they more than likely didn't even write their own music. And I know those there's those of you out there, like myself, I'd heard this five, six years ago, I'm like, oh, you're full of it, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, this is, this is the absolute truth. There's no way that the Beatles were even a real band, as most of the bands that we heard in the 60s. But that's a whole nother thing. But it's been a very eye-opening year <clears throat> for me, and uh, it's it's been a good year too. I mean, uh, I've been on a quest to lose weight, and um, about a year ago, I weighed two hundred and twenty-four pounds. And as of uh, my weigh-in this last Monday morning, I weighed two hundred and six pounds. So I've lost approximately eighteen pounds. And my goal right now, my, my long-term goal was 200. So I'm six pounds away from my long-term goal of 200. And to celebrate that day, when I get to 200, I'm going out for pizza. Because <laughs> I haven't had pizza or carbohydrates. I, I didn't really, I've been, I've been working on my weight loss thing off and on for about a year. But I really bit the bullet and started doing uh, exercise back in April. So I, I've done it the right way. I've gradually lost the weight since April. So April, May, June, July, August, September. In five months, I've lost uh, 18 pounds. And, it, you know, it's been it's been a, a great thing. I, I never thought I'd get here because I'm 56 years old. And as you get older, <clears throat> you uh, your metabolism slows down. And I've got aches and pains that I never had before. And I don't, I've never liked running. I mean, I would love to play football, organized football in high school if I didn't have to do all the running. That was part of it. I couldn't stand the wind sprints. The, they called them suicides. I think we, you ran from 20 to 20 and 30 to 30 and the 40 to 40 and the 40, 50 to the goal line. Uh, but you have to do that stuff football. you gotta, you got to run to play football. But um, it's been a very productive year in that sense. My the new documentary I told you about I I keep changing the name to it the one about my childhood um, originally it was called Spilled Alcohol then I was called, I'm going to call it Drunkard's Path I have another name now another two other names I don't know what to call it I, I I'm hoping to have it done this month <clears throat> have it edited and ready for release release by November and I was going to send it through to my distributor which is Film Hub. They're not really a quote a true distributor, but but they do distribute the film to mostly pay per view or um, video on demand platforms. But they've they've been good to me. They've, they've got my movie out there, and I'm thinking of sending it to them. But I'm thinking of just putting this video on YouTube for free on YouTube and BitChute and uh, Vimeo and places like that. So it should all be done within the next um within the next like two months I would say. Eli was a dog whom excuse me, whom I had um discovered at the Arizona Humane Society. I was volunteering at the Arizona Humane Society as a photographer to help them find homes for their dogs and their cats. So I'd go down to the Humane Society once a month once a week, whenever they needed me, and I'd snap some pictures, and they'd post them on their website. And because up to this point, they just had somebody with a with an iPhone or with a point and shoot trying to get pictures of these dogs, and I got some pretty good pictures. And it just turned out, you know, that they needed me on this one particular day. Here, I'm going to pull this this one. Um, I'll mute the sound. So this is my dog Eli. When he was adopted, and his original name was Toby. And Eli was a Chow Chow Border Collie mix. And when I met him, he stole my heart. And I just loved this dog to pieces. Now, keep in mind, I had just lost three pets. So, you know, maybe I was on the rebound, Eli. <laughs> but Eli, <clears throat> excuse me, Eli was a beautiful dog with a great heart and he was kind and he was gentle 
and he had all kinds of energy, and he was fun and intelligent. He was one of the sharpest, kindest dogs you'd ever want to meet. And I uh, am grateful to this day that I met him and that he was part of our lives. And he loved the snow, he loved to lay in the snow, and he loved to run in the snow. And I loved Eli more than anything. And in the last couple years, he got real sick. And we noticed that he was no longer lifting his leg to pee. He would squat. And if you've had a boy dog, you know that most boy dogs, or all boy dogs, raise their leg to pee. But he would squat to pee. And then we noticed that he was panting all the time. He started panting constantly. Even in cold weather, he was panting. And then we noticed, you know, that his back legs would give out every now and then on our walks. And my wife noticed it, and she's like, did you see that? His legs are giving out. There must be something wrong with him. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. There's nothing wrong with him. He's fine. Don't worry about it. And I was in complete denial. I didn't want to believe that he was sick. And then, then we both noticed, that, you know, he didn't want to go on long walks anymore. We take him. We used to walk him a couple miles a day. And um, then we noticed he would we'd get all the way down the street, and he'd want to come back. And so, so a few months ago, not a few, but probably like eight months ago, we took him into the vet and had him checked out. And she said, you know, he's probably in pain. If he's panting a lot, he's probably in pain. She checked him out. She didn't do x-rays. Uh, but she said, keep an eye on him. And then, like in February... One day he woke up and he couldn't keep his balance. He was, his head was tipped to one side like this and he was tipping over all the time and he couldn't walk. So we thought he had had a stroke and we rushed him into the vet and she's like, no, he's got something called vestibular disease, which is an infection, I think, on, on the inner ear and I think it was his left inner ear because she said it will clear up in a couple of weeks and he'll be fine. Well, it did and she was right and it cleared up and, uh, but he had lost his hearing in his left ear, and I know this for a fact because you'd walk up to him on his left side and say something, and he'd look to his right. Or if you were out of the room and you called into him, he'd always look to his right. He, he could only hear things out of his right ear. And, and he wasn't the same after he, quote, recovered from vestibular disease. And from that point forward, it was a, it was a slow decline. I mean, over the last couple of years, he used to be able to jump up on our bed we have a you know a regular bed on a, on a, a four poster bed, and he couldn't jump up on it, so we dropped it to the floor. So we had the box bringing the mattress on the floor, and he could jump up on there and sleep with us. And then it got to a point like eight months ago or so, right around this vestibular disease thing, that he couldn't even get up on that. And uh, so about six months ago, we took him in. She did X-rays. Uh, our vet did X-rays and said he had hip dysplasia. And he had arthritis. And he had hip dysplasia in both his back legs and arthritis in his front. And, you know, he, he was in a lot of pain. So long story short, as time went by, he got worse and worse and worse. He couldn't even stand up on walks. The last time I walked him, he just, after 50 feet, it's collapsed and would lay on the ground. And so um, we made the heartbreaking and very difficult decision to have him put to sleep this a week ago today. And when it happened, when he went down, I hadn't put an animal down since 2009. But my wife and I were sobbing. We were crying. Me more so than my wife. As I said, you know, my wife comes from a very stable family, very stable background. Mine is, is very shaky, to say the least. And I have a lot of emotional baggage that I bring with me from my childhood that I've been wrestling with for many years. And whenever I lose a pet, I just, I just, it just knocks me on my ass. I, I cry, I sob like a baby. And I'm, I'm sitting there on the floor as my dog's being put down. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this so hard? Why, is, why am I crying like this? What is it about loss for me? that seems to be magnified more so than other people I know. For instance, I had a friend of mine I'd known since first grade, my friend Todd, 
um, he had a heart attack and a stroke. Uh, um, geez, I think it's been over a year now. And at one point, the doctor said there was no hope. He was in a coma. He wasn't going to recover. And I remember just sobbing, you know, by his bed and, you know, out in the waiting room and stuff. And, and other people were upset. You know, his wife was there. My wife was there. His his family was there, his kids. And I seemed to be the only one that was, like, really kind of losing my mind. And um, fortunately, my friend Todd recovered almost completely. Um, somebody's prayers were answered that day, and he's still with us, thank God. But my point being is, that, you know, I'm sitting there as my dog is going down, and Eli's taking his last, last breaths I'm wondering why, why is it like this? And I'm thinking, why, why? I'm thinking to myself, why do I feel so horrible about my dog dying? And it occurred to me at that moment that it's kind of bizarre that we live in a society where we can get more unconditional love or complete, unadulterated pure, unconditional love from a dog or a cat. But we can't get it from people. Why is that? And I'm sitting there on the floor crying, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm like, isn't this a weird, fucked-up world where, you know, I get more love from a, a, a mammal with four legs and a wet nose than I can get from people I know and have known my whole life, my own family? The only person in my whole life that gave me unconditional love was my mother. And for the first 10 years of my life, she was kind of out of it. She was unconscious along with my dad due to her addiction of alcohol. Fortunately, my mother, you know, she showed her true colors and got sober and gave me a good life, gave me a better life after about the age of 10 until she died when I was 26. But she's the only one that, never lied to me. She's the only one that ever tried to make up for her, uh, quote, mistakes, unquote. When I was younger, she's the only one that apologized to me. She's the only one that ever saw how bad it was and tried to make up for it. She, My mother sacrificed her life to give me a better life because the job she took after she divorced my dad ended up killing her. Doesn't think much more. You can't sacrifice much more than that than your life. I don't. You can't sacrifice any more than that. Life is all you got, and she did it. And I've never met anybody since my mom. And I think each of us try to replace that unconditional love of a parent, if you were fortunate enough to have that kind of love. And we're not finding it in our spouses. We don't find it in girlfriends or boyfriends. We don't find it in in humans. And I've always found it curious that we have to search outside of the human race for love and affection. And I was, I was thinking about this a lot since my dog Eli died. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, why is it? Why is it that, that we can't find it amongst humans? And it occurred to me that, that we're raised in this culture, in Western culture, to be very self-centered. We're not raised to be empathetic or caring or kind or, or provide unconditional love other than to our children. But when it comes to unconditional love between spouses or between friends, you know, most of us are wrapped up in what society tells us to be wrapped up in. If society tells you you're supposed to be a football player. Most people will dedicate their lives to football. And I'm just I'm just using football as an example. But think about all the people I know in high school and college that were determined to make the pros, whether it was football or baseball or basketball. And I think every single one of the guys I know that tried to make it ended up with severe injuries. One guy who was a great pitcher, I think he had rotator cuff surgery when he was like 20 or something. And it ruined any chance he had in college, and it ruined his chances for the pros. But but he, he devoted all this time and energy. And, and think of all the people we know that devote their time, their energy, myself included, to becoming a rock star or a writer or an, a, an accountant or a CEO. 
And we we're all de- we're devoted to the cause of perpetuating the American dream, and somehow we've gotten so distracted from what's really matters each of us and our families and our friends that we'll throw all of our friends aside. We'll throw our families, our kids, everything aside to achieve these dreams and goals that in most cases are not even achievable. And and that's not being pessimistic. I mean, myself included. I mean, I, I've, I've spent the last 15 years of my life honing my skills as, as a photographer. A lot of time, I spent probably 30 years working on my guitar work and my singing. I've taken vocal lessons, guitar lessons. I've learned how to write better songs. But, you know, you devote all this time, this money, and this energy. I even broke up with people. (laughs) I broke up with people because I wanted to focus on my music. I broke up with a woman I was engaged to. One of the reasons I broke up with her I was engaged to was because I really wanted to focus on me and my music. Fast forward 25 years. And I find out that the opportunities for myself in the music world are impossible regardless of my skill level. And I say this because I've discovered the music business is not only is it crooked and dark and evil, it's run by intelligence agencies inside the government. And that's not paranoia, that's true. And I'll get into more of that next week. But anyway, the opportunity for any of us to become famous rap stars, famous actors, to find to get into any of that stuff is almost impossible. To become a, a professional football player, the, the odds of you making it as a professional football player in this country, in the United States, in the National Football League, is almost like you can have like one in like one million of a chance to make it. You're better off playing your money, your odds on the lottery. So we waste a lot of our lives chasing after pipe dreams, chasing after the wind, chasing after rainbows. Because they tell us to. You're raised. Hey, hey, Pete, be all you can be. Just do it. If, you know, be like Mike. All the little catchy, cliche things they tell you. Smoke Marlboros, you'll be sexy, right? And in all the beer commercials they show, they show people having a good time drinking beer, but they don't know that if you have one too many, you, you, you stand the risk of becoming an alcoholic and ruining your life. Nobody talks about that because the beer companies and the alcohol beverage companies are making billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars off of your suffering, off of your addiction. So we distract ourselves, we we, we did. We take away from the family unit, we take away from our friends to become self-centered people to try to achieve this, to try to achieve that. And I'm part of it. And we turn to pets to find that love and affection and unconditional love that our fellow humans can't or won't give us because they're distracted by so many other things. Now, again, you know, as I've said in my other podcast, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist or a counselor. I, I don't have a degree in counseling. This is just comes out of analysis of the things around us. And analysis of my own life, you know, the, the, the time I've lost chasing after the wind. And I'm not just talking about, you know, I'm not saying this out of being bitter. But I think of all the things I believed in growing up and and how since my mother died, I've been trying to replace that unconditional love with somebody, with my wife, with with girlfriends I dated before my wife. I'd I'd meet a woman and I thought, well, I saw this in a movie. If if you buy a a, a, a Jimmy Stewart, if, if you buy a girl flowers and you take her to dinner, she'll fall in love with you right away, you know? And um, it doesn't work that way. And they distract you. And I say they, I'm talking about the powers to be that are out there, the control, that are controlling the circus. We all live in a circus. But we're, we're really the circus animals. We're the circus animals. And the powers to be are the ringmasters. And we're the ones jumping through the hoops, distracting 
we're distracted that there's an exit over there. The tent exits over there, but they don't want us to see that. So they keep cracking the whip and get us to jump through hoops, getting us to chase after football dreams and rock star dreams and acting dreams and corporate dreams and all this crap. Going to business for yourself, you'll make a million if you learn how to flip houses. It's all about pursuing the money. It's all about pursuing the fame and the fortune and notoriety. In the meantime, your friends and your family and your kids are getting neglected. And and I can I bet you anything that you're I, well I know this for a fact you're not going to be laying on your deathbed going oh if I'd only played one more round of golf you know I could have made it to the Masters if I'd only if I'd only process one more insurance claim I could have become a, a CEO of of a Progressive I could become a department you're not going to be doing it I saw it with my own mother my own mother lay in the hospital with tubes in every orifice in her body except her ears. And she apologized to me on her deathbed. She apologized to me for things that she knew hurt my feelings when I was a kid. She wasn't laying there thinking, boy, if I'd only, if I'd only stayed married to my husband one more day, maybe I could have become a movie star. You know, she wasn't sitting there if I'd only... You know, she was thinking about me. She knew she had made some mistakes in life, and it haunted her to the day she died. It haunted her that she had hurt me. And the, the sad thing I can tell you about my mother's deathbed, she lay there with with a tube in her throat. I'm not certain what the tube was, but she could mouth words. And it was me and my sister by her side, And my oldest two brothers were nowhere to be found. And she kept mouthing their words, their names, over and over again. Again and again. I'll never forget that because she wanted them to be there. She had something she wanted to tell them. But my brothers turned their back on their mother years and years ago because they couldn't take her. My mother could be an absolute bitch at times. And um, they, everybody, all of my older siblings had falling outs with her. And they couldn't be there. They weren't strong enough to be there. They weren't strong enough to stand by the bed. But, but my point is, on her deathbed, she thought that everybody would be around her. She thought everybody should be there. And even in death, her family disappointed her because they were either too weak or distracted with other things that were more important to them like their cars and their wealth and their jobs. And uh, I had one brother that's a Christian, a boarding ed Christian, and, and, and you talked to him on the phone about mom, and he'd, he'd get real solemn, and he'd say, well, Pete, we'll pray for you. Oh, thanks a lot, buddy. That's really going to do mom a lot of good as she's laying dying in bed, you fuck. But hey, that's what I'm talking about. So we're disappointed, we're disillusioned, we're abandoned by our friends, we're abandoned by our families because we're in pursuit of the the love of our life, we're in pursuit of the car of our life, the job of our life, the career of our life, the house, the McMansion, the big yard, the 2.5 kids and a Labrador Retriever and the pick a white fence. In the meantime, we can't find true love and we turn to our dogs and our cats and our hamsters and our parrots and we turn to them for unconditional love, or what we perceive to be unconditional love. And I think it's because we can't find it in people because everyone's so distracted. And it's sad. I think it's sad in a way. Because when I think about my dog Eli, now he's, he's only been gone a week, but, but he's really been gone a couple of years because he wasn't the same dog for a couple of years. He was really, really changed. He was like a zombie dog. Especially this last year, he just wasn't the same. And as, and as I watched him deteriorate, I wondered, you know, is he hanging on for us? Or is he just hanging on because his instincts say to hang on? You know, and people say, oh, he loves you. He wants to stay with you. I, I don't know about that. As I watched him, he he really wasn't having a very good time being around us. He really didn't spend much time with us. He was asleep 20 hours a day most of the time. And then when we started putting him on medication to ease his pain, he was asleep like all day. And so I'm thinking, 
is this love? Is this is he staying because he loves us? And like in, in the storybook in our head that they paint us, paint our how to think storybook like as a kid. Oh, he loves us. He's sticking around because he loves us. I, I don't know. I do dogs do dogs know love? Do dogs and cats and hamsters and guinea pigs and stuff like that know love? Or are they just existing? Are they just surviving? Do they know about tomorrow? Do they know about yesterday? You know, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think my dog, I still got a dog now, Zoe, I don't think she sits there staring out the window thinking about, oh, what happened yesterday? Because she doesn't seem to notice that Eli's gone. She doesn't seem to have a clue. But my point is, you know, we spend our lives chasing after things that are meaningless. We're neglecting each other as people. We're neglecting our family members in the pursuit of things that are meaningless in the scheme of things, which leaves us empty, and we try to find love. And, and what we perceive to be love coming from our dogs, we consider it unconditional love. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's beautiful, I mean, if that's what that is. I, I can't tell you, Eli, I had... Two other dogs prior, I had four other dogs prior to Eli. And Eli was an amazing dog. He was amazing. And he was friendly and soft and kind and gentle and intelligent and intuitive and strong. But, but I don't know if he loved me. I'd like to think he did. But he was trapped. You know, he was, he was stuck in the circus tent with us. He couldn't escape. We wouldn't let him. He was a slave to us. He wasn't free. I can tell you, I think he wanted to be free. He got he got loose once and he ran away many years ago. And fortunately, we found him. But there's times he'd walk up other people's driveways. You know, and, and it wasn't because he had dementia. It was because I, I kind of think he wanted to kind of get the hell out. And maybe, hey, what's over here on the other side of the street? <laughs> there's some other people over here with better food. But... We, we put our hearts into these pets and, and we think they're putting their hearts into us because we are not finding it with other people. We're not finding it in our parents. We're not finding unconditional love. I'm sorry, not in our parents, in our friends or our spouses or our girlfriends and boyfriends or acquaintances because everybody's got their mind in other things, We're, especially these days. Everybody, myself included, you know, I've got this camera and, and computers and you know, but but I tried to go on to the internet to make a difference to get people to think. All we have is each other. The chances of you becoming a famous whatever it is is near next to impossible. They've got you chasing after your tail. You're chasing after rainbows in the wind. You'll never grasp them. But they convinced you that if you're just like Mike, if you just do it, be all you can be. You can be happy, but happiness is right in front of you with your own friends and relatives and family members. You know, I, I can't begin to tell you I, uh, how when I was a little kid, I was in the hospital when I was 10 years old. I'll never forget how good it felt to have people that I knew come into the room to see me once I came out of my coma. My brothers were there. My sister was there. My one brother only came once because... He apparently can't handle much that deals with emotion. But, in yeah, I have some bitterness towards my family. They're, they're, most of them are cowards. They never faced up to anything with, with mom and dad. They just took off. But when I was in the hospital, people showed up. You know, people came to the room. I had one of the Cleveland Cavaliers came in. You know, it, it lifts your spirits. It makes you feel good. You're like, oh, people care. And recently, my, my wife's uncle got sick. He had double bypass surgery, and he was in the hospital. And, you know, I don't know him all the well, all that well, but we know each other. I know, his, I know his kids, and I've been to parties with him. And I walked into the man's room one day to go see how he was doing, and he just about fell out of the bed. He looked at me, and he's like, he's like I go, hey. He goes, yeah. I go, it's, it's Pete Tompkins. He goes, yeah, I know who it is. He goes, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I just, you know, I thought I'd come by and see how you're doing after surgery. And I, I did it because I know how good it feels. You know, I wasn't trying to get a pat in the back, but I knew how good it felt to get visitors when you're in the hospital. It's a horrible place to be. 
And he seemed to genuinely appreciate me showing up. But that's what we've forgotten about. We've forgotten how to be decent to each other. We've forgotten how to love each other. We've forgotten how to be family members. We've forgotten how to love unconditionally. We've forgotten that. We're too busy being men. Being men, we're too busy, if you're a woman, being upwardly mobile to show men that we can succeed. And men are too busy being men because that's all you can be as a man. Smoke cigarettes and drink beer and womanize. And now we've convinced women that they don't need to be at home with the kids. We've convinced women that the best thing to do is to be like a man and go out and be successful and conquer the world just like a man. In the meantime, men are out of the house, women are out of the house, the kids are left at home, and <laughs> our country's falling apart. Just this country. I can't speak for England or Italy or France or Brazil or wherever. This, this country is falling apart. Kids are, are killing themselves and hopped up on booze and drugs at very young age. At a very young age. Why do you think that is? Because they don't have anybody to love them unconditionally. And as I sit here, you know, I, I look at my dog, Eli. And this, is, this picture was taken years ago. This was taken uh, when we, uh, this is probably taken eight, nine years ago. During a snowstorm when he and I were on a walk. And this is how I choose to remember him. It melts my heart. He used to be able to jump up on picnic tables. And he would just sit up there and watch it snow with me. And I considered that love. I considered him to be in love with me and happy to be with me. He seemed happy at the time. But could there have been a better place for me to be? Could I Could I have been at home with my wife? Could I? Like right now, you know. My wife has dedicated her life to a major corporation she works in. And I've dedicated my life to my music and, and art and photography. I'm constantly trying to get studio space. I've got all this equipment running around. Why don't we just take time to get to know each other? Why don't we take time to be with each other and love each other? And maybe, and there's nothing wrong with loving a pet, but maybe we could take it in stride when they pass. Maybe we could not feel so de devastated when they go if we're not, if we found love and we had a support system. And I'll tell you that this right now, the support system I have around me right now helped me get through this. You know, my wife, my in-laws, my friend Todd and his wife, Krista, um, a variety of wonderful people on Facebook that, that I don't really see in person anymore, but everybody reached out to me and gave me condolences and, and wonderful people. Uh, my, my friend James that I've known for 30 years, he called me last night to wish, wish me condolences and the loss of our dog. And it's that kind of love is that kind of respect and empathy that's been lost. And that's why we throw ourselves in these pets. Now I'm, I'm being completely theoretical here i don't know this for a fact but there's got to be a reason why we we hold these animals so close to us you know it's it's got to be a lack of something in our own lives here's some more video of eli he loved to lay in the snow he would lay in the snow and just chew on his toys this is a blizzard i mean this is a picture of him in a blizzard and he would just lay out in the snow <laughs> And, you know, you couldn't get him to come in. But the unconditional love of a pet is a great thing. If, if you don't have that kind of love from, from your family or your friends and you're alone, um, a pet, a dog, a cat, a guinea pig, whatever it happens to be, can give you that kind of love. But once they go, it, it wrecks you. And they're, they're only in our lives for a very short period of time. That makes it even harder. You know, it's too bad they don't live 30, 40, 50 years. But, you know, Eli was, we think Eli was 14 when he died. He could have been older. The, the, the um, Humane Society thought he might have been a year and a month to a year and a half old. So he may have been almost 15 when, he, when we put him down. He was an old guy. But unfortunately, when they leave, they leave a big hole in, in your heart. And I know why I've got a hole in my heart. A lot of it comes from my upbringing. And, you know, uh, if my mother were here, she'd be like, oh, you know, 
don't blame all this shit on me, she'd say, you know, she has some, you know, quick comeback to defend herself as being a phenomenal. And she was. My mother recovered, and she got sober, and she gave me a good life. She did, and I'm very grateful, and I love her for it. But there's a lot of things that happened prior to that that have really wrecked me as, as an adult. And it's left me wanting something, somebody to go, hey, this guy's great. And when a dog jumps in your lap like Eli did in 2009, and you know, he, he literally jumped in my lap and looked up at me and I said, I got to have this dog. He's beautiful. And, uh, but I don't think it should be that way. I don't think we should get, have to get love from animals to be healthy in this world. And I think that's where the dysfunction is. The dysfunction doesn't come in on loving pets. The dysfunction comes in on relying on the love too much because we're not getting it from where we should be getting it from our friends and our family and the people closest to us because everybody else is so distracted with, with what they're doing. And, you know, I, all we have is each other, and that's been the message of my podcast since I started four years ago. All we have is each other. The corporations don't care about us. They want us to buy their products so we get addicted. They want us to buy their booze and their cigarettes and their food and their fat and their chips and their cars. So so the guy at the top, predominantly men that run these places, can get more money in the bank account so they can run off on their yacht with a leather mistress and sail off in the sunset happily ever after while we're sitting here chasing our tails. And that's something you've got to understand. It's all a lie. Yeah, we need to work. Yes, we need to work. And we need to make enough money to put a roof over our head. But to have our lives so distracted that we don't love each other and care about each other the way we should, and then we have to start relying on dogs and cats and guinea pigs and you know parrots and turtles to give us love, that's where the problem is. And, and I can tell you this right now, I call it getting out of the matrix. When you're out of the matrix, when you, when you leap from the rabbit hole, and you're out into what's real. It's very hard to take. It's very hard to understand. And it's painful because you realize that everything you believed and everything you invested your life into is a lie. And you realize all these people that you've left in your wake, you've left behind because you were chasing after, like myself, for 30 years. I thought for sure one day somebody would notice my music. That never happened. And then, then photography, I thought, well, someday somebody's going to notice my photography, you know. And uh, now I just don't even care. I just do what I do. Like a friend of mine said, you better be careful what you post on Facebook. You might offend some people. And I was like, oh, and I went through Facebook and I started deleting all these posts that might offend people. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm trying to wake people up to the truth. And uh, so, so I, I don't care what I say now. I'm not trying to offend anyone. I'm trying to shake the snot out of you to wake you up and go, wait a minute, music is a lie? Sports is a lie? Wait till I get to talk about sex. The pornography industry has distracted me and every man I know. Every man, including my father, has completely warped our mind about women and what sex is all about. And I'm not thinking about this from a, from a, biblical, a biblical, biblical perspective. I'm talking strictly anatomical and biological perspective it has warped men's minds we're completely brainwashed by pornography and it has distracted western society for a thousand a thousand years or more i mean pornography has been around forever though i personally couldn't get off on a stone carving of a mayan woman with um you know enlarged breasts that wouldn't do it for me Though I guess those guys got off on it or something. Because there are all these fertility gods <laughs> from that era that I didn't pay attention to in history class in college and high school. But, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to put down pet lover. I love pets. I'm not trying to put down, you know, you, you say, oh, I love my dog. You don't know what you're talking about. Well, there's a reason why we love our dogs. There's a reason why, especially guys. I don't know why guys, but I think most of us guys... We put on this bravado that we're tough as nails, and then you you ever watch a guy when he has put down his dog? It's because we keep it all inside for so long, and we're trying so hard to be like John Wayne. And for those of you that don't know who John Wayne is, he was a, a movie star, 
back in the, I think the 30s and the 40s. And he was somebody that my dad grew up watching. He was a cowboy actor and he did a lot of, you know, war movies and things like that. And John Wayne was somebody that uh, they called the Big Duke. You know, here's a picture of him. I'll pull it up here. I think most people know who John Wayne is, though I've, I've met some people that are a lot younger that don't know who he is. There's the Duke, and he talked like this, and he said, hey, if you want to kill an Indian, you know, he was always fighting Indians. No offense to the Indian people out there. I'm not I'm not an anti-Native American. But the Duke was all there was to be. And all of us are trying to be like the Duke. And I remember my dad would model him the way he held his cigarette. My dad held his cigarette. He'd bring it up to his mouth like that. Because mom said it was the, the, he modeled himself after some ridiculous actor that smoked his cigarettes that way. So we've got to learn to be good to each other. And you've, and, and if you listen to my podcast, I, I'm slowly rolling out evidence that shows that everything that we chase after is a lie. You can have a career in music. Sure, you can you can be a bar band or be in a duo and play at parties like I did, and you can do stuff like that. But the chances of you becoming a superstar, I'm a superstar. You know, it's not it's not it's not going to happen. And I don't care how good you are, because there's people out there that are superstars that are terrible. And I'm not going to name any names because it'll offend even more people. But there are bands out there that are just terrible, awful, <laughs> and people are like, oh my god, they're amazing. And they didn't play their records. They didn't play instruments on their own records. Oh, Lord. But if we if we focus on what's real and what's important, it, it'll bring you unconditional love. And you'll, you'll feel better. And you'll feel fulfilled. And you'll feel happy. And I know for myself, I love my dog Eli unconditionally. I did everything I could for that dog. My wife and I both gave him a great life. We gave him the best food, the best medical attention. We gave him a great place to live. We have a big yard. We took him on walks. I have absolutely no regrets with my dog. I have no regrets with my mother. I have no regrets other than I wish I knew more about life then when she was alive than I do now. Then I, I wish I knew more about life back then. And I could have empathized and been with her. And I said, oh, Jesus, I didn't realize all of this stuff that you went through. And maybe I, but I have no regrets with my mother other than that. I mean, she and I left it all on the table. And if she didn't like something, she told me. And if I didn't like something, I told her. And we'd have it out and we'd, we'd make up. And uh, I have no regrets with my mom. With my dad, I have no regrets with him because he was unconscious for the first like 14 years of my life. He really was. I'm not being mean. The guy, the guy was literally passed out or, you know, not home or, you know, he was a, a drunk. Almost, I'd say 80% of my childhood, he was completely wasted. So there was nothing, there was nothing, and, and there were no words, you, you know, there were no words you could throw at the man. Um, You know, you tried, hey, dad, please don't drink anymore. As if, as if that he would go, you know what? Hey, you know, Pete, I didn't think of that one. Huh. I think I'll stop drinking now because Pete, my son, said don't drink. That's that's a good idea there, Pete. <laughs> don't work that way with, with addiction. But when you love unconditionally, you have no regrets. You you can say goodbye to somebody and say, I did everything in my power with this person, and I love them unconditionally. Same with my dog, Eli. He died. And, you know, I'm walking around today on the same, you know, park that he and I used to walk in. And I went, you know what? We had a great relationship. We had a gr- I had a great dog. What more could I ask for? He's gone, and I miss him greatly. But I loved him. I don't know how else to put it unconditionally. And I think, I, I, li- I like to think he loved me back. And uh, my next, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a video out about how to cope with the loss of a pet. Because I've I've found ways to do it that are healthy without having to go to counseling, without having to call a grief counselor on an 800 line. But I'm not going to get into that today. But what I'm asking each of you and the few people that will listen to this is to please love each other. 
find a way to find acceptance and forgiveness towards people that have hurt you. Try to find a pathway uh, out of the rabbit hole so you can focus on what's important. That's each, each other because they, they don't want us to know about each other. They, they've now separated us. The COVID, the pandemic, the pandemic has separated us. Now we're all sequestered to our homes. Nobody works in an office. We don't see each other anymore. Nobody knows how to talk to each other. We've got to find a way back to each other. We've got to find a way back to what's real, and that's each of us. It's just about us. You and I are all we have. That's that's it. So with that, my friends, I, uh, I bid you adieu. Have a great rest of the week. Today is Tuesday. You enjoy yourselves. Love each other. Love each other. Up on the roof. Look up for something, but there's no proof that anyone's ever been here at all. Chasing the wind, learning to crawl. See, you've been crying, no tears flow when love is something that you never know. Listening to PC Pop, a mind revolution, leading you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time.